0: If you are between the age of three and first grade, we would invite you to attend Children's Church at this time. As the rest of us turn to give our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and our minds to do that. Let's read it together. This is the one whom I look upon with favor, declares the Lord, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. This morning's scripture reading is taken from James chapter 4, verses 3 through 17. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 1045. That's page 1045. Again, the text is James 4, verses 13 through 17. In these verses, James warns us of presumptuous planning. He says that while we may pretend to be the captains of our fate, in truth we are quite powerless and quickly passing. True freedom and fullness of life, he says, are found not in pursuing our plans, but in pleasing a God who will do all that he pleases Hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone, then, knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them.
1: We've been just amazed how, how, how direct, how confrontational in some ways James is. He, he awakens us. He calls us out in uncomfortable ways, but he does so in love. He does so in great wisdom, and he does so with humility. So this morning, as we turn to consider the Word, let's, um, let's focus on what we, have, what we have, this few verses in front of us. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the first time, I can remember the first time as a kid, I don't know a few kids can relate to this, but I remember the first time as a kid that I received money for Christmas. I didn't have an allowance growing up or anything like that, so I didn't really, didn't really have a yet understanding of money. I was probably five, maybe six years, six years old. And I got again, I got a $5 bill in, in, in my, uh, I think it was in my, it been in my stocking. And I was so eager, I can remember being so eager to go to the store and to buy a toy with this money that I had. I woke up the morning that we were going to the store, and I did my chores more quickly. In fact, I did them more carefully than usual. And I remember my dad, just as an aside, I remember my dad noticing how well I did my chores that morning. And he complimented me. And I remember that just very distinctly, and I remember beaming in response to how I had done well, how I had done my chores well, done them quickly, and my father approved of that. Now the previous evening, as I was laying in bed, and that entire next morning, even while I was driving to the store with my dad, I was imagining the toys that I would buy, toys that I'd seen on TV, toys that I'd, and I imagined what life would be like after I spent my money at the store, after I'd gotten these toys. And then we went, and then we went we to me, and then when we went to the store. Um, I, I ran to the aisle the, you know, the aisle with the toys, and I looked at all the toys, and, I did, and there I did something that I had never done before in the toy aisle. I looked at how much each toy cost. And then I looked at my $5. And I realized that most of the toys were way too expensive. And all my plans, whoop, suddenly, just gone all my dreams, all my everything, it was all evaporated, never to happen. And I felt so small. I was so depressed. And it was there that my dad and I, there in that very toil, the toy aisle, that my dad and I had a very important discussion. A very important discussion. And that night, after, actually as I was thinking about the day, that night I was tu- after being tucked in bed by my dad, I remember reviewing the day in my mind. I remembered first when I had been the saddest, the saddest part of my day that was there in the toy aisle at the store, seeing all my plans come to nothing. But then, I think by God's grace, I remembered when I had been the happiest. Do you remember when it was? When I had finished my morning chores, and my dad had complimented me. Let me say that again. I was saddest when I was pursuing my own plans. And I was happiest when I was pleasing my Father. Again, I was saddest when I was pursuing my own plans, and I was happiest when I was pleasing my own Father. Our text this morning says something very similar to us. First, it says, life isn't about the pursuit of our own plans. It's just not. Life isn't about the pursuit of our own plans. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It has often been said that man makes plans and God what? laughs. He laughs, right? Some of you may be familiar with the first century historian and philosopher, Plutarch. He's he's famous for his lives. He wrote these biographies. And one of the lives that he wrote was one of Alexander the Great, the great uh, Greek conqueror in general. And in uh, in that uh, biography, he tells a story about Alexander at age 20. I mean, we read what Plutarch writes to you. Listen to Kids, listen to this. I think you, know, you can understand this. We read that, that, that Alexander wishing to consult the god concerning the expedition against Asia. So he's going to go into Asia. He's, he, he's already been victorious a number of ways. Um, and he wishes to consult a god or goddess. And this is at Delphi. If you're ever familiar with Delphi. Delphi is in Greece. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hill. I've been there before, actually. And there's, there's the famous oracle of Delphi. And you go there to receive prophecies and oracles. And he, again, uh, Plutarch says, wishing to consult the god concerning the expedition against Asia, he went to Delphi. And since he chanced to come on one of the inauspicious days, that is to say, he came on one of the days when the, the oracles, the prophets, they're not really doing their thing. I mean, in the ancient world, actually, there was very common in the ancient world that you had certain days that were unlucky days, and there were certain days that were more popular days. And, and you only wanted to do an oracle on a, on a, on a popular day or on a, on a lucky day. So, and he says, Plutarch uh, says, he chanced, since he chanced to come on one of the inauspicious or unfortunate days, when it, is, when it was not lawful to deliver oracles, in the first place, he sent a summons to the prophetess. So here's, imagine that, here's Alexander Great with all his armies, etc., all his generals, a very important guy. He, it's an inauspicious day. He's an important guy. He doesn't care, so he sends for the prophetess. Plutarch continues, and when she refused to perform her office, and she cited the law as, as an excuse. Alexander went up himself and, and, and dragged the prophetess to the temple, whereupon, as if overcome by his resolve, she yelled, Aniketas, Eo, Pai. Aniketas, invincible, E, are you, by my son. You are invincible, my son. Plutarch continues, on hearing this, Alexander said he desired no further prophecy. But he had, he had from her the oracle which he wanted. Isn't that what we all want to hear? <laughs> Especially at age 20. <laughs> right, Alexander, he drags her, you're going to give me an oracle right now. And she says, okay, you're invincible. Is that like, good? We'd love to hear That's the oracle that we all want to hear. And of course, was the prophetess right about Alexander? Age 20, he's got, I mean, think about it. He just goes on, just plows through the rest of the Middle East, right? And then what happens at age 33? Just Dead. I mean, historians don't really even really know why. I mean, in the, middle of his, in the midst of his prime, I mean, he is, he's not defeated in battle. It's not like he goes down like Napoleon or whatever. I mean, not, he doesn't lose. He just simply somehow, according to, I mean, some of the sources are different. According to Plutarch, it's some sort of fever. They don't know if it's poisoning or what, but literally, age 33, he just mysteriously dies. See, James has something very different to say than the Greek prophetess at Delphi. Look again at verse 14. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. (laughs) What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Wow, what a perspective. See, James confronts us with our limitations, severe limitations and foresight. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow limitations in our lifespan you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. next time you're out barbecuing right take a little bit of water or something and throw it on the fire Psst, ah, up, there's bruce right she's here today and gone tomorrow i said this before and i'll say it again when my father my my, my, my father's father my grandfather he lived to 86 and my father wasn't there, but his brothers—I have, have two uncles. His brothers were both there um, as he was dying, as just before he kind of fell into a, into a comatose state before he passed. And he said these words at eighty-six: "It all went so fast." And those of you with the, with, with a little bit of gray hair, those of you can testify to the fact of how fast life goes. How, how often we presume upon tomorrow, we presume to be able to prophesy and foresight all that these things are going to happen. And the truth is, we have no idea what's going to happen. How, isn't James' message a little bit timely, isn't it, for this week and all that's going on? We don't know what's going to happen even tomorrow. We are so limited in our foresight and in our lifespan. You have no idea. I want to bring in just for a moment a, a poet that you may, have heard, may or may not have heard of. He's, he's a little bit difficult to read, but I think is so important. His life, he actually, he's from St. Louis here. His name was T.S. Eliot. And Eliot, uh, one of the things that just most bothered him about life, one of the things that he loathed and hated about life was the idea of time. He hated the idea of time. Because for him, life was always difficult. There was always a past. There was always something you did wrong in the past. There was always things that you should have done differently. The past was always something to loathe, always something to regret. And for him, the future was always about something to, just something to fear, something to be anxious about, something to to always be wrestling. What am I supposed to do? And Elliot, as he wrestles with it, and Elliot, you know, he he comes to faith in Christ, and, and you can see that in his writings in this beautiful way. But he comes to this place, Elliot does, where he realizes that that God's purposes in, in history will stand. And that the purpose of the saint, listen to this, the purpose of the saint is to lay aside the past and the future and to live right here, right now. To be present. That's exactly what James is saying. In fact, what he does, he, he, I was listening to Alan Jacobs. I'm by no means an expert on T.S. Eliot, so Alan Jacobs, who is a world-class expert on T.S. Eliot, uses this wonderful analogy in describing Eliot and what's called the Four Quartets, where Eliot wrote this, this, this long, long poem called the Four Quartets. And it's so amazing how um, uh, Al, Alan Jacobs, in his, his lecture, he speaks of this idea that Eliot came to a place where he realized, especially with respect to the future, that he was trying to be a chess master and the anxiety, and the burden, and the stress of trying to be a chess master. You know what a chess master is, right? Someone who's able to play the game of chess in such a way that they can foresee all these various moves, moves, counter moves, all these permutations, all these scenarios of what might happen. And therefore be able to plan and strategize and weave and navigate and figure it all out. And of course, for most of us we go to play chess, I can... I'm not going to sure I can see really two or three moves at a time I'm terrible at chess. But you know what even if as a chess master life is more complicated than chess. However many permutations there are in chess in life there are infinitely more. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean I can remember just a week or two ago Sarah and I looked at we did we reviewed our finances. And we were looking at like our 401k, we're looking at you know various investments that we've had, and we're like, wow, the stock market's been up 30% this year. Isn't that amazing? And we made some financial plans based on that. Whoops. Right? The Proverbs say, Cast but a glance at riches, and they will sprout wings like an eagle and fly away. Yeah. But, but Elliot and, um, and Alan Jakes, in his description, he calls us out. He says, can we be that chess master? Or in fact, are we more like chess pieces? And as chess pieces, it makes us wonder who's moving us around. Who's really in charge? And for Elliot, Elliot centers his whole focus on the incarnation. Where God becomes man, where God, through his agent Jesus Christ, acts in ways that are final and decisive for the world. And he looks at the person of Jesus Christ, and what is Jesus' great aim? I'll mention this a little bit later. But what is Jesus' great aim in life? Does Jesus have this master plan, this master strategy? No. What does he do? He comes and he, he obeys. He obeys. That's all it. He just obeys. Each day he gets up and he fulfills the summary of the law to love God, and to love neighbor. And it's so beautiful. Let me read these words from, this is from the third section of the Four Quartets called, called the Dry Salvages. And T.S. Eliot says these words, it's so beautiful. Right action, like what, what are we to do we what, what do? Kind of, what kind of action are we to do? Right action is freedom from past and future also. So right action is about you know, basically saying, no. I'm not going to live in the regrets of the past. I'm not going to live in the fear of the future. I'm going to look at my day right now and say, what would God have me do? What is love? What does pleasing my Father look like? And it's not to say, let me make a difference between doing my will and acting in God's wisdom. Acting in God's wisdom is saying, generically in life, there are certain things that go certain ways, and I should be, I should be mindful of wisdom. There's nothing wrong with acting in wisdom. This isn't some sort of, you just live in the moment without regard for anything. He's saying not to, we're not, there's a difference though between acting in wisdom, and acting according to my will. This must happen tomorrow. It's today, I'm going to, just today or tomorrow, we're going to go to that city, we're going to conduct business, and we're going to make money. So wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and, And James calls us away from that. Elliot continues, right action is freedom from past and future also. And then he concedes, listen to this, for most of us, this is the aim never here to be realized. <laughs> He's so realistic. He's like, most of us will continue worrying about the, the past and the future. Most of us, this is the aim never here to be realized. We who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying. Isn't that beautiful? Christian, and you get up in the morning, what is your primary task? To go on trying. To keep going. To surrender your will to your Father's and to say, in His will is my peace. So let me just ask you, before we move to the second part here, do you, do you really know what's best for you? Do you? And the older I get, I'm 42, the older I get, I just realize, you know, I don't really don't think I know what's best for me. I don't. Do I do I really want to be in charge? If I really don't know what's best for me, do I really want to be in charge? Can I even be in charge if I wanted to? And James is calling us away from that illusion of self-control. I was talking. She was talking with one with one of you yesterday, and I compared this past week and this whole coronavirus to. To, you know, I don't know if you've, if, if any of you have ever been in air travel. You've been traveling a commercial airliner somewhere and you're at 30,000 feet in the air. And you're going, you're reading your book, you're, whatever it is you're doing. I mean, you're doing some work, etc. But you're running along and you're, you're doing your thing. You know, whatever you want to do in that moment. And then suddenly some major turbulence hits. And, and you realize what? That you're at 30,000 feet in the air going at 500 miles per hour and you have no control whatsoever. Right? and you get kind of anxious, and you grab a hold and it's and that's, that's, that's what, grabbing a hold that's going to do something. Well, I'm going to grab a hold of this, and I'll be fine, right? I remember one time I was flying, this lady next to me, she was a, a real sweet lady. She, we were on our way to descend, it was into Fort Walton Beach, and uh, suddenly we had some major turbines, where so the aircraft was going up, you know, up and down, about 50, 100 feet. And she, instead of grabbing onto the, to the, um, you know, the, ar- the armrest, she actually grabbed onto my leg, and she had these... these um, these uh, nails, and she just dug my nails into—this into, was, this was Florida, so I was in shorts. Anyway, I'll never forget that. But um, anyway, that's what she did as a way of grasping for control, and that's often what we do. Actually, when we go grasp for control, we actually hurt others. Actually, grabbing, forcing, demanding our way because suddenly we realize some things happen. We realize how little control we have. And of course, then what happens? The turbulence goes, it leaves, the plane settles out, and we go about our thing under this illusion of control. And it's things like the coronavirus. It seems like life that just come into our lives and suddenly we realize, wow, we have no control whatsoever. And that is one of the most important life lessons to come to this place of how passing, how fleeting is my life. And there are forces at play that are way greater. And who is in control of those forces? Is there anyone in the cockpit? Is that person, the are are they competent? Are they wise? Are they caring? Do they care for me? And of course, James lives in a world where life is not about plans and pursuing our own personal plans. Life is about pleasing a Father who loves us, who cares for us, whose will is best. So life is not about pursuing our plans. It's about pleasing a father. Let's look, look at verses 15 through 17. Instead, says James, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That's not just some sort of flippant, you know, trite, sort of, well, if it's the Lord's will. and If you know, any of you know Arabic at all, it's, um, in, the, in the Muslim Arab culture, you have this phrase, inshallah. Inshallah means if it's the, if it's the will of the Lord. And it's used very, very flippantly. Sort of this idea of like, well, what will be will be, and it is, and it is, whatever. And it's this very sort of flippant idea. Here, James is using the phrase, "If it is the Lord's will, if it is the will of the Lord." This is a central piece of what he's saying. He says, "If indeed our plans align with God's, that will happen." And we would prefer that God would have His way, that His plans would succeed. In verse sixteen, he goes on. He says, "As it is, your boast and your you boast in your arrogance." All such boasting is evil. You can ask my wife and kids. There's all, it's, it's so regular. Well, I will get up at the very beginning of the day and I will make all these plans. And I'm going to accomplish like 50,000 things that day. Oh yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write a book. You know, heal some marriages. you know, Go over here and work out for now. I'm going to do all these sort of things. And of course, at the end of the day, I'm like discouraged, disillusioned, frustrated. So I got almost none of that done. James says that's arrogant just boasting your arrogant schemes. I'm going to do all this stuff. All such boasting, he says, is evil. What we are to do then is to not worry about the future. Not be consumed with our plans and purposes. Not have regret about the past, but simply to focus on pleasing him. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So often we're in that place where we're worried about the future. Oh man, I'd, I'd like to help my neighbor, but there's a coronavirus, and so I need to go to the store first and take care of myself. Jesus says, love my neighbor. It's the greatest commandment. But I, I can't right now. It's complicated. We find all these excuses of why, we, because of past or future, of why we can't do what is plainly there in front of what God calls us to do. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James is calling us out of the way that our circumstances and our, the uncertainties of life prevent us from doing the thing that our Father would have us do. You know, for me, this was a major, a major um, discovery for me was found in college when what James is saying here came to light. See, the thing is, James is calling us to a freedom. And that freedom is a freedom from fear of the future. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a freedom to ask the question, listen to this, this is so important. Do I need to understand my life? Do I? Do I need to understand my marriage? Do I need to understand the problem, challenges I have at work? Do I need to understand my health issues? Do I need to understand before I obey? Am I willing to say, you know, I trust you. In this specific area, I'm going to trust you. And I don't need to understand what's going on. I know the good I ought to do, and I'm going to do it. That's faith. That's faith. It's the faith of so many who have gone before us. This past week, this past week, um, well, that's past two couple weeks, actually. My, my daughter, my twin daughters, Lydia and Rosemary, and I have been reading through a book, and Dr. Sarah's been listening on too. But I've been reading it aloud to them. And it's called, I think I've mentioned it before in the Sunday school context, but it's called Ethnic America. And Ethnic America is a, story, is a, is a book written by a, a very well-known Afro-American economist, and it basically tells you, Out each chapter is, an, is a, simply a summary of how different ethnicities, how different nationalities came to America, and it is a gripping read. It is amazing, and right now we're in the chapter about how, the, how Africans came to America. Of course, they're the only people group who primarily did not come to America on their own. They came through slavery. And the story that we're reading through the story of, of, of the American South and how and just the, the ways in which uh, the, 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 the slaves were treated, etc And now we're at this place where it talks about right after the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and the end of the Civil War, you have a number of persons in the in the north. Most of them were affiliated with what was called the American Missionary Association. And these persons, listen to this, a lot of them were young women, single young women who decided that they would leave their lives in the north and go and, li- listen to this, they would go and live in the south and be teachers at these tiny rural schools to teach black students. And when they went, you know, can you imagine how welcome they were by their southern, with southern whites? Some of them were beaten, some were mocked, some of them were murdered. And when, when they went to teach, listen to this, when they went to teach these, 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 these children of slaves, I mean, the, the psychological, emotional impact of slavery was massive over generations, such that a lot, of these, a lot of these kids, they had never learned the idea of learning. In fact, it was illegal in most southern states to teach slave slaves to read. So the whole idea, the whole way of keeping them from running away is to keep them simply, keep them as ignorant as possible. And so a lot, of these, a, lot, a lot of those slaves, they had never, the whole notion of learning, the whole way of as a parent of actually emphasizing the importance of learning, so many of these basic disciplines, these children did not have. They were used to a world of survival, a world where you did what you could, you stole, you, you fought, you did whatever it took to simply self-preserve. And so these women at the cost, at, at, great, at great risk to their own lives, they went in and taught these children who a lot of them didn't even want to learn. And they, they gave their lives. Who does that? Who does that? I mean, think about the fears of the future they would have had. Imagine them getting into it and regretting their, you know, wondering you when know, they regrets this. Was this a good idea? But they went and they gave their lives. It's such a beautiful story. At one point, let me see if I can find it here. At one point, we, um, we, we, we read this later. Listen to this. <clears throat> we read this. Um, Uh, In the early post-war years, the average teacher lasted three years. That's how difficult it was. Listen to this. The, The author goes on to say, Yet from this foundation was built the education that generations of blacks looked back on with gratitude and reverence. Later, black leaders from W.E.B. Du Bois and, and to, to Booker T. Washington praised the selfless work of these missionary school teachers who helped create an educated black class of black Americans. Du Bois called it, quote, the finest thing in American history. What a, what a beautiful statement. And Mary McCloy Bethune spoke of, quote, those beloved consecrated teachers who took so much time and patience with me when patience and tolerance were so desperately needed. Isn't that beautiful? What inspires persons to do that? It's when you just say, you know, I'm not going to fear the future. I'm not going to regret the past. I know the good I got to do, and I'm going to do it. And again, let me close with this. This is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He came on the cross, excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, not my will, not my will, but your will be done. And the author of Hebrews says that by that will, you and I have been consecrated. By that will, you and I have been welcomed into, the, into the, 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 the heavenly place of our Father. You and I have received cleansing and purification for all time. You and I will share in a new heavens and a new earth because there was one who came and lived his life in the name of love, who knew the good that he was supposed to do and did it. So let me ask you in this time, especially in this time, this, this, this time of great uncertainty, this time of, of you know, economic um, uh, of difficulty, whatever it might be, and by the way, so much of this, for me, so much of this, I, I probably not not being a very good pastor right now, because after, after I spent four or five months in Puerto Rico, we had no power, no water, and you just had, there was complete collapse of an entire island. What we're going through right now seems pretty, just not that big of a deal. But. Um, but you know, it's it's. It, I mean, this is a it's a great time. As I said in my email last yesterday, it's a great time for us to to look and to not fear for ourselves, and to love others, to enter into the lives of others, and, and to simply talk with them. I can't encourage you enough to do that. Simply to talk to your coworkers, call them up, whatever you're working from home, or whatever, call them, ask them, hey, how you doing? How are things going? And just simply enter into their lives. I think you might find that you're, you, this is an opportunity to talk about things that matter with your family co- family and friends, coworkers, classmates. It's a wonderful time. So let me just, let's, let's, let's bow our heads together in prayer, and we'll read these words of exhortation, and, and we'll worship together. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the riches of your love for us. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the joy, the joy that is found in simply laying aside uh, a focus, uh, an obsession with things past or future. Father, we renounce our our, our sort of our, our selfish, uh, self-preserving plans, especially when it comes to our finances. Father, we always think that we have these strategies, and Father, oh, it's just get rich, this get-rich, this get-rich-quick scheme. And Father, we we step away from all that. We renounce those things, and we ask that Your will, not ours, that Your will would be done. We ask for Your plans and purposes to stand. Father, we cry out to you asking that you indeed would be one who oversees, who indeed subdues our hearts, who is so ready, so willing to give us the wisdom that we need. Father, indeed, we are a vapor. We are so fleeting and so passing. Our time here, our time here is so brief. Father, may we use it for your glory. May we sacrifice for you. In the name of love, would we give to others? Would we intercede for others, Father? This morning we think of those who are sick. Father, a number of persons in our congregation are sick. Nancy Neff. We think of um, Pam Sutherland, Father. We think of um, Don Kinnison. Lord, there are others who are not who are under the weather, not feeling well. Lord, we pray for them, and we ask that you would strengthen them, that you would be with them, Lord, and that we would be with that we would be with them as well. Father, help us during this time to band together, even when we cannot meet, perhaps in large in large uh, gatherings. Lord, let us meet uh, so regularly with one another in small groups in our homes. Father, help us to open up our homes and our hearts to you. Lord, we love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.